Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Linda Vodder is the Oklahoma-accented, exuberantly spirited woman behind some well-loved garden life resources, including Potage blog on Instagram and garden-inspired living on YouTube. She is as well-known and recognized for her former storybook Oklahoma Garden, its expansive front garden and deliciously designed back garden potager, as she is for her extensive and supremely elegant collection of hand-raised topiary. Linda is both fun and fashion-minded. For the second in our Gardener's Summer Vacation-themed episodes, Linda Vodder, I am so pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place after so long following your growing work. Oh, how kind of you. And I'm so flattered by your kind words. I'm I'm humbled. Thank you. Well, it is just a great treat to have you on. And I think many listeners will know exactly who you are. Um, but you know, I always introduce people the way I perceive them. I would love to have you introduce yourself the way you introduce yourself in a in a more personal setting and maybe include in that the role that plants and gardens kind of hold, the, the meaning they hold in your life in, in the most distilled version, Linda. Well, I'm very much, I describe myself as a self-taught garden designer. I had no intention of doing this in any kind of formalized business way when I first started out digging in the dirt. But I, I think I've always, there's always been kind of a germ of, of gardening as an idea when I was even young. And I I've often said that my first, uh, my gateway drug to gardening was just houseplants. And I think once I started with houseplants, I just became fascinated with green growing things. And that's something that just continued to excite and animate me um, mm. over, over the years. And as I grew older and hopefully wiser, I see so th the metaphorical qualities of gardening, you know, gardening mm. is really just a metaphor for life. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it holds so many lessons for us. And they they change as we get older. I couldn't agree with you more. So if you were to take us back and you already started with your, your house plants being the hook that got you in there uh, as a smaller person, but tell listeners a little bit about where you were born and raised and maybe some of the kind of key people, places, and plants that grew you into a woman for whom this would be your not only your signature style, but your your calling in life to share with others, Linda. Well, I think if it makes any sense, gardening has been for me a great companion. So I'm one mm -hmm. of a very large family. I have brothers and sisters, and my mother died at a very young age. I was five. Father subsequently got remarried, and we had I had then fairly shortly thereafter, three more siblings. And then the, we moved a lot. And we, I was born in Indiana, but then we moved to Tennessee and we moved to Oklahoma. And then we moved back to Indiana. And 
I I think that that really informed how I looked at gardening because gardening and just nature in general and plants in particular, they were of great comfort to me. Despite the geographical differences of where we would be, I could still kind of have a relationship with what that particular geography offered. And on those occasions when I would be homesick or grieving or or something, I just found I found their familiarity comforting. Mm-hmm. And I think that even today, gardening comforts me. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. It does make sense. And so uh, I, you know, and I think I can I can hear listeners out there nodding their head, Linda, because it is about style. It is about beauty. It is about food and flowers, but it is also so much about that heartfelt companionship that this relationship gives us. It's, it's, it's very primal. Yeah, 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 I agree. And and I think most people do that. It calls to us, and it's it's our own gardens and how we cultivate them. But the, also the familiarity of the the characteristic landscapes where we were raised or where we have lived. Those trees, those shrubs, right? So move us into you moving into young adulthood and and sort of setting out on your own. Did you did you go off? You say you are self-taught. Did you go off to school to study anything before you got started in your own kind of garden life as as your own person? Well, I I actually um I was just very much an avid reader and I love to to read a lot and I found that as in in general anything that would talk about green spaces or the secret garden or things like that that would in great depth describe the landscape really spoke to me and what's interesting is when I was younger I didn't in any way think that there was a way that 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 very deep interest could translate into any kind of career. And as a young woman, I think, and particularly coming from a large, very educated family, I just looked at it from the perspective of what could get me a job. So actually, I have an MBA. And I was in a Mm. career world for a great period of time. I worked with small colleges, small private colleges. I was an educational consultant. And I did that. I did that for years. And it was only later I started my family late in life. I got married late in life. And it was only when I had the luxury of time that I realized how wonderful it was to, as Bill Moyer would say, follow your bliss and just garden to your heart's content Mm. and raise a garden as you raised a family. And then slowly over time, there was this wonderful synergy of, of maybe marrying my love for garden with some of my whatever business acumen I had. And it turned out to just be a perfect marriage of varying interests. Yeah, I love that. So you know i think many people will recognize the the instagram feed and maybe it's on other mm-hmm. platforms as well facebook or or wherever of potager blog 
When did you start this? And 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 you are very much a self-proclaimed uh, Anglophile, <laughs> uh, and you know you are grounded there in Oklahoma and have a very strong sense of, you know, from my seat, a, a very strong sense of kind of Midwestern welcome and hospitality and and like hominess. Tell us a little bit about starting the garden that would become the vessel for potager blog it was it was a very um i guess i guess zeitgeist when i traveled to england and and i saw rosemary Verry's garden for the first time i had i had started oh. a garden i you know was a voracious reader and this was before there was pinterest or Instagram, or really that much digital representation of really beautiful places. You either had to see them in books or you had to go visit them. And I was just, it was absolutely crucially important to me that I saw Rosemary Berry's garden that I had read so much about because I I was just obsessed with her garden and her books. And when I saw it, and I described this in great detail in my book, I was I was absolutely smitten. I was smitten not just with the beauty mm. of the landscape and her gardens, but I was smitten with, and I think it was the, the the genesis of my concept of a gardening lifestyle, because it wasn't just her potage wasn't just mm. this beautiful place with its its gorgeous regimentation and and blend of ornamentals and edibles. It was very experiential. And I just loved the experience of it. Every it was very sensual, um, from obviously the visual beauty of yeah. it, but then in so many impactful ways, you know, you felt the wind on your face and you heard the birds, and I, I could imagine being out in the morning and picking things for, for, uh, for your table and the harvesting and the, the flying insect wildlife. And I think it resurrected the magic of, of the books that I read as a child, like the secret garden and things that, and it brought it to life. It was just so impactful to me. And so even though I live in a far different climate um, on the Great Plains, and certainly I I couldn't recreate it exactly. I came back with great intention right. and great motivation to make that potage speak with an Oklahoma accent. I love it. I love and, it. Yeah, and have it translate from a British accent into an Oklahoma accent and make it and make it possible in the in what would be good garden fit here in Oklahoma. Right, right. And one of the things that I love about this is what you just made very clear to listeners is that you have a fantastic sense of humor as well as a fantastic sense of style. <laughs> and um, and that comes through and, and makes what you're doing so accessible because I think many of us love the idea of a formalized garden, but don't know quite how to make it fit. And we like the look of it. We like the order of it. We like the comfort of symmetry and, um, you know, clarity and progression. But mm -hmm. but you you give us a model of how to incorporate that with 
taking care of your soil, with planting for uh, wildlife and pollinators and seasonality, um, and all all with a sense of humor. And I love that story. And, and I was hoping you would share it about going to Rosemary Veary's garden because it was. If people haven't um, ever Googled it or or looked at it or or visited it in person, it was a tremendous garden. And as you say, just it is it was very sensual, just as your your garden has been as well, Linda. So you come back from this about what year would this have been anyway that you you visited Rosemary Veary's garden for the first time? Oh gosh, it was probably I can't even tell you now. I probably 26 years ago, maybe more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it, it all begins to kind of blend together over over time. That it was 25, it probably was 35. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 my time has changed as I've gotten older. It, it I love, I love the organized chaos yeah, of yeah. it all. I yeah. love the tension between the orderliness of it and the disorderliness mm. of it. And the tension between the architecture and the clipped nature of it, and then the kind of, of blousiness and, and just the quality of it. I just love that juxtaposition because it was kind of a way to get the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's one of my signature touches is that I like the framework that contains beautiful chaos. Yeah, exactly. And that was probably the single moment that I just, that I just loved. Yeah. And still do. And still, still do. Yeah, I bet. I mean, you, I, that's clear in everything that you do, that sort of exuberant infill of of a of a formalized structure. So, all right. So take us to Oklahoma. You you tell us exactly where you are and what, what zone you are. And when you say very different climate, give us some of the, the parameters of your climate. What is winter like there? What is summer like there? So people can get a sense of of what you're, you know, some of the constraints uh, that you are working with in developing this beautiful garden. Sure. Well, first of all, let me start out with with a disclaimer that I love Oklahoma. I, yeah. I truly do. It's my home. But it also taught me the humility of and that to garden is to suffer because <laughs> it just ain't easy yeah. to garden on the clay baked where the wind literally does come sweeping the plains. And I, I garden in zone 7B, uh, a little bit of a taste of how it is to garden here. Um, in, in one year, we had record ice, record snow, record sleet, record hail, record wind, record tornado, we had an earthquake, and in a part of Oklahoma, there was even a hurricane. So if it's like I garden in the land of Job, there is some truth to that, some truth to that. But also, I hope it communicates to people that if I can do it here, anybody can do it. Because... Yeah, because it's yeah. just it's just figuring out a way. And if you're a true gardener, you will figure it out. 
This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we revel in the beautiful chaos of the summer garden with an Oklahoma accent. We're joined by Linda Vodder, author of The Elegant and Edible Garden and founder of Potager Blog and Garden Inspired Living. Stay with us. We'll be back for more with Linda and her beautiful, elegant chaos and garden inspired life story. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. Hey, it's Jennifer. I'm kind of feeling like we need to cue the song from the musical Oklahoma right about now. What about you? sweeping down the plain. But I also have New York and Maine and Cincinnati, Ohio on my mind right now as well, because I am currently making plans to be in all three places this August and September, and I'm really looking forward to it. You can find all details, dates, times, specific locations for my upcoming events over at the website cultivatingplace.com forward slash events. I'll be speaking on my own at the Coastal Maine Botanical Gardens in Booth Bay on August 31st and at Cincinnati's Civic Garden Center on September 7th. But I will be in great garden community in New York at the Garden Conservancy's inaugural Garden Future Summit on September 29th and 30th, a two-day in-person event that looks to sustain the remarkable passion and interest in gardening today by presenting a selection of the most exciting ideas shaping the future of gardens and society at large. The summit will focus on three essential topics within contemporary gardening, environment, community, and culture. And I am so proud to be the session chair around community, with session speakers including representatives of new affiliates, of PWP Landscape Architects, of Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, and of the Urban Health Lab. Whether it's on the coast of Maine, in downtown Cincinnati, or New York City, or any of my other upcoming events, I look forward to meeting many of you. Please, please come up and introduce yourself and say hi. We're back now to our conversation with Linda Vodder, author of The Elegant and Edible Garden and founder of Potager Blog and Garden Inspired Living. She is based proudly in Oklahoma. As we come back, Linda is sharing more specifics as to what it means to garden in Oklahoma, including the ways in which private gardens can be powerful gifts to their communities that help to lighten often unseen heavy loads and, of course, some garden rules for visiting. 
So my average last frost date is April 15th. But I would say that for those of us here in Oklahoma, to me, the garden season starts so much earlier. For me, it starts as soon as you begin to see those first tips of the bulbs coming out of the garden. And, you know, you wait with such great anticipation for them to do their thing. And then then the garden, I would say, at first slowly unfolds. And then all of a sudden that Oklahoma heat kicks in and then it explodes. Mm -hmm. And I love a slow unfolding of spring, but typically it kind of just bursts upon us and it's just an incredible thing. Yeah. A really incredible thing. Yeah. I think that slow unfold, um, especially, you know, as you say that you'll get, you get those sort of little flirtations of your snowdrops and then your crocus and then your, you know, and then the tulips and the daffodils come, you know, kind of unfold a little bit later, but there's a special treat there in your now former garden mm-hmm. of a spring display of tulips. Will you, will you tell, tell listeners about this? I think I could live without food, but I don't think I could live without tulips. They are just such an expression of joy. And for me, most of the time, my garden has has some restraint to it. You know, I have lots of evergreen structure, lots of boxwood, lots, lots of four season interest. But man, I get out my box of Crayolas with those tulip bulbs and I plant thousands, hundreds, if not thousands in the fall. And I love coming up with different kinds of color combinations and and different ways that they will really enhance the rest of the landscape. And instead of it just being an ex- a, a display of tulips, it becomes this symphony of all of the things that begin to happen and the color echoes. And the tulips may be the queen of the show, They, but they would be nothing without their supporting cast. So then later, all of the other things begin to kick in, the golden fever few and all of the pansies and the creeping flocks. And I like to put in um, some edibles in there, too. So there might be some black seeded Simpson lettuce. There will be some red ruby cabbages. I like it to have a very Farmer McGregor kind of feel. And so it's it's just this wonderful explosion of everything that makes spring magnificent. And it's all in your front garden. The display you just discussed is all in your front garden, which was in a, a, a you know a lovely sort of historic neighborhood, I think, in in uh, on the front of a very sort of storybook Tudor architecturally Tudor house, right. brick brick home. Why is it in the front garden, Linda? Will you share that with people? Well, I think um, part of it because it's it's very important to me that my garden isn't just a gift to myself, but it's a gift to others. And what a tragedy it would be to have all of that hidden. I mean, I could enjoy it, but what a tragedy it would be for all of that to be hidden in the backyard. And I think I was so influenced by a couple of people in my neighborhood who always had beautiful displays and it gave me such joy. I thought, well, 
I can give that kind of joy to others. And I have I have often laughed and, and said that over the 32 years that I lived in that home, I think every child in the neighborhood thought they think they will grow up in this, have grown up in the same house because everybody got their Easter pictures, their christening pictures, their Mother's oh, Day great. pictures taken in front of my house. And may I share a story? Oh, please. So... In the spring, there would literally be carloads of people <laughs> that would drive by to see the show, especially around Easter. And one year in particular, uh, a truck drove by. It was on the Saturday before Easter, um, you know, the day where there would be all of the Easter egg hunts and things in the different neighborhoods. And and a young man came by. He, he had a truck that had... Um, darkened window so you couldn't see a whole lot and he got out of the car and he said oh my goodness your tulips your home is just so beautiful would I would you mind if I took a picture and I people are always wanting to take pictures so I said of course not so as I stepped to get out of the way I looked in the back seat and I saw this darling little girl who maybe was three years old in her car seat and she had uh, uh, an Easter basket in her lap. And I said, oh, I said, better yet, why don't you, If is that your daughter? And I said, better yet, why don't you take a picture of her in front of all of the tulips? And he said, oh my goodness, could I? And I said, well, of course. And and then as I, as I stepped out of the way, um, I realized that the mom was in the front seat <laughs> because of the darkened windows yeah. I couldn't see that she was there. And and she said, and she said, oh, may I watch? And I said, I've got an even better idea. I said, why don't all of you sit in front of the tulips? And I will take a family picture of all of you right before mm-hmm. Easter. And she and she she said, Oh my goodness, would you do that? And I said, Oh, absolutely, it would be my joy. So I I took a picture, several pictures to make sure that you know, everyone was positioned correctly and the light right. was good. And and then as they were all loading back up into the car, she pulled me aside and she started to tear up. And she said, I can't tell you what that means to me. She said, this is, is the first family picture we've had taken since my husband's been home from Iraq. Oh. And it is, she said, what a gift this is. And mm. I just, I had so many instances of that, Jennifer, over the years where people would stop and they would say, oh, I, you're my gift to myself. I drive by your home on my way to chemotherapy. And, and I, I think I began to realize the power that a garden has to lighten heavy loads and to to just be a form of connection with other people on a on a level that everyone can understand, regardless of political affiliation, regardless of anything. This is a language that we can all speak and that we can all appreciate. And I have gotten back so much from my garden that it is now a mission for me to give back when I can. And and we know this about gardens, right? They are one of the common grounds where we can meet and transcend these many things that might divide us. 
But I, and so I'm going to move a little bit out of the earnestness and and into some of your beautiful humor. You have a couple of rules for (laughs) how people approach a gardener in his or her front garden, especially if they might have been running out in their nightgown to get uh, the paper or pull a weed or pick a, pick a tulip. Can you, can you tell us some of these? There are certain things that I, I, I consider to be good garden etiquette. Yeah. And one is to never make eye contact or even pretend like you notice that that gardener is out in their pajamas in the front yard. (laughs) I love this rule. I love this rule. Yeah. Or or even for that matter, in in high heels and pearls, you know, you just don't comment on it. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, if there is a weed, a true gardener will have to pull it. It doesn't make any difference what your attire is. That is so true. It, it is so true. And if if you want to stop by and you want to take a garden tour and you want to do those kind of things, by all means, please contact me. But don't come in August. <laughs> when it is 115 out. And you have this expectation because you've seen so many pictures of my garden that that's what it looks like 24 seven and and want to come on garden tours and take lots of pictures in August. Um, So I found it just so ironic that the first magazine spread I was ever in was Southern Living and they wanted to shoot in August. (laughs) And, and they should know better. Of all of all of the magazines, they should exactly, know better. Exactly, exactly. There's another rule that you have in this list, and it speaks directly to something that you refer to so uh, kindly over and over again, and that is a gardener's vanity. And so if, if someone <laughs> wants to ask you questions about your garden, what is your rule about how they're allowed to do that, Linda? <laughs> well, I think what... what <laughs> First of all, and I, I I really believe this, before you start asking questions, before you start commenting on, oh, how this would work in your garden or whatever, if you are in an absolutely undeniably gorgeous garden, first, don't pretend like it's ho-hum. Acknowledge first, because a, a, a gardener is vain about their garden. So first, you know, First, acknowledge the obvious. This is unbelievably beautiful. And I know it takes so much hard work. And then if you ask that person, that gardener for help later down the line, don't say, oh, I want exactly what you have, but low maintenance. (laughs) 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 Because that completely defies um, right. Your hard work over the years. Right. It, right. Yeah. It it really degrades how much work you have put in over the years. So there's just, you know, there's just certain things like that, you know, acknowledge the obvious of a garden's beauty, intrinsic beauty, and more importantly, acknowledge the composition and the hard work that's, yeah. that's required, I think. Right. Well, and I think this really speaks to the importance that uh, that you place certainly on what you are doing, but also what other gardeners are doing in that it is a, a very personal form of artistry and creativity. And I, I would add that even if you don't think it's a it's a beautiful, extraordinarily beautiful garden because your taste might be different, 
you can see that someone has worked very, very hard on this and and they have exposed themselves to allowing people to come in, to take pictures, to visit, to, to whatever. So just acknowledge that with grace. And then after you're done gushing about their garden, <laughs> then you can pick their brain and get a free consultation. I, I was laughing at this because I think in general, in our world, we're not supposed to be vain, but but vanity is also one of our great strengths and resources. And our gardens are an extension of us, what we oh, feel yes. like, what we look like, right? Yeah. Yes, they're an extension of our of our tastes and our style and our yeah. priorities and the way we live our lives. So I I think that needs to be acknowledged. But I also think that the more you garden the more you have an appreciation that there is no one standard of beauty. There are many forms of beauty. I am just infatuated since I live in the Southwest, very near, you know, desert areas. I, I just, you know, I'm enthralled by what the beauty of places like Santa Fe and in Arizona, there's no one form of beauty. It speaks many, many languages. And, but I say that with a caveat that the form of beauty that your garden speaks, it hopefully is speaking the same language as the architecture and, and the, you know, the, the aura of your home, because Mm. I do firmly believe that if there's a, if there's, if it's discordant between how this style of garden you have and the type of home you have, I think that can be disconcerting to people. So Mm -hmm. if I have an English garden, then, then I'm putting it in front of my English home. So now I have an English cottage, which will also have with, with a number of changes, but also an English garden. If I had a Spanish home, I, I think it would look somewhat odd for me to have you know, a cottagey kind of garden in front of my mm-hmm. house. So mm-hmm. I think that they need to speak the same language um, for better for better garden communication and better visual communication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I think that harmony of of the architecture with the garden design and with the climate, like that is the sweet spot for me of what Absolutely. a good garden is going to include. And, um, and that sense of style. Uh, and so now let's, you know, is there anything else you would like to add about the the blog and the the social media platform before we move to the book, Linda? Well, I think I, I would add this that I I have a I'm a firm believer in something I call good garden fit. And it starts by answering just so many questions that you ask yourself relative to the context in which you garden, because it will dictate so much. And if you really analyze that, you know, the context of what your neighborhood is, your geography is, um, of your lifestyle, you know, how much time do you have? What's your budget? All of those kinds of things. Then when you begin to put a garden together, you can you can match that garden and fit it in with all of those different contextual elements. And where so much frustration, I think, we get so frustrated is when we try to make things fit that don't belong within the context of our lives. 
This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we're joined in conversation by Linda Vodder, Oklahoma-based gardener and author of The Elegant and Edible Garden, founder of Potager Blog, and Garden-Inspired Living. We'll be back for more with Linda. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. So one of my main takeaways from this conversation with Linda Vodder, have more fun, have more flair, and maybe even be a little bolder about it all. No one is ever going to accuse me of not being earnest enough. But the fun factor, I think I'm going to work on that during my summer garden vacation. I say this with a big smile on my face, people. It's okay to know our strengths and our growth edges, don't you think? And really... Oddly enough, we need more of both. We need both more gravity and more fun. They are not mutually exclusive in a garden day or a garden life. We're back now to our conversation with Linda Vodder, author of The Elegant and Edible Garden and Proud Oklahoman. When we left off, Linda had shared some thoughts on good design, incorporating what fits visually and literally what fits in our lives, with our homes and in our gardens. As we come back, she shares more of her very personal experiences, determining what fits, as she and her husband have let go of their beloved Tudor home and garden of 33 years and are adapting to a new old cottage home and garden in this new chapter of their lives. All of this she faces with her same un daunted senses of humor and flair. Yes, very much. And I think that what fit for me before doesn't fit for me now. And my lifestyle is very different. My children are both grown and gone. And and it's interesting because I was compelled to start another garden, you know, just to, to see if I could do it, I think. And I thought it would be a different, completely different style of garden, but it's not. It, it'll just be on maybe a different scale with changes around the edges. But it was driven by the fact that I I wanted a little bit different lifestyle. And so this neighborhood that I'm in is, it's very, I wanted more of a European lifestyle where I could I could walk to so Uh, many places and this area is much more walkable so the fact that within 30 minutes I can walk to my downtown library I can walk to my favorite museums much less my favorite bookstores and all of those kinds of things and still have a very much of a neighborhood sensibility in a historic neighborhood that that became an overpowering motivation Mm -hmm. for me I wanted that kind of European lifestyle, if you will, or provincial lifestyle where I could walk where I wanted to go. And I think, you know, we've had so many historic apocalyptic storms in Oklahoma, ice storms, wind storms, all sorts of things that I have I have survived um, at my former home, but it began to be that I felt in that location that I was spending more time just replacing things and um, trying to get it back to where it was versus starting anew. 
And I think for me, I wanted to be more regenerative than restorative, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and and we do have different phases in life where we need different things. We want different things. How many years were you in that home and garden? So I was there for uh, about 33 years. And when I started at Jennifer, I mean, I knew nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So it raised you. That's what you're saying is that garden raised raised you. I, I, I knew I didn't get married or start a garden or have kids until I was in my 30s. And, and thank God for ignorance. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> if I if I knew then what I knew now, maybe I, I wouldn't have been quite so bold. So maybe a little bit of naivete is a good thing. And it was just wonderful. It was it became a fairy tale for me. And I never in my wildest imaginings would have thought that I personally would have been able to create anything like that. And it makes me worried, will I be able to do that again in a climate that's even more extreme than it was when I started that garden? Well, if anybody can can do uh, your your european lifestyle garden with an oklahoma <laughs> accent it is you and and one of the things i love about the new book is you know and and certainly your instagram feed as well which is you've been you know dedicated to for years so people can go back and see all kinds of pictures and stories and and videos of of mm-hmm. everything you've done but the new book the elegant and edible garden really is a a beautiful tribute to the lessons you learned in that garden and and the the beautiful uh lifestyle you're hoping to give people permission or or just style you're hoping to give permission to people to to pursue on their own as well well what a keen observer you are because that book in some ways gave me permission to let that house and Uh garden go because I felt like it was my Mm -hmm. homage to that garden. It was my putting a stamp on this specific place at this, you know, during that specific era, I wanted it for my children. I wanted it for myself, but I also, I did, and I know it's, it's filled with, you know, so many after pictures, because when I started, Jennifer, I didn't know I was going to be on this pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know to document every phase, every, you know, I was just kind of documenting pretty pictures along the way, but I didn't know the importance of, you know, before and after. Right. And, and so a lot of the images in the book are, are the after images that, that, I, I do think are are beautiful, but in since I didn't have a lot of imagery of the the beginnings of it, I hoped that the text conveys that it didn't happen with deep pockets. It didn't happen easily. It didn't happen quickly. It didn't happen with a huge makeover crew that came in and in one day made everything happen. It happened over time with so many mistakes and just, you know, so many things I had to learn along the way. So I hope that, that the conversational tone of it expresses that and maybe will flatten the learning curve a little bit for other people 
to follow that pilgrimage that I was on and not make some of the same mistakes I did, but also more importantly, to realize for themselves how much of it is intuitive, how much of it they already know. It's just someone kind of pointing out the obvious. That's all I'm doing is pointing out the obvious. Well, I, I think it's a little more complicated, but I, I love that. And I love and I love that acknowledgement that we do know more than we think we know, especially about what we like, what makes us happy, and what is what is yes. gonna grow well or yes. do well where we are, right? Um, but I I also think that I hope you do flatten the learning curve for for some people, but I also hope they see the great joy in the process of of not having your garden be this overnight object that you purchased from a contracting crew. That it is this relationship, yeah. Um, and you epitomize that uh, in in the love you have for the garden and the short stories you you share about it. Why was it important that it was the elegant and edible garden, Linda? I just think that we all have a capacity for elegance within us. Does that I make do. any sense? Mm. And I think that there can be great elegance in simple things, mm. in the arch of a branch, in the tenacity, I think it's a very elegant thing to have the tenacity to be a gardener. Mm. I don't know. It's it, it just elevates something that can sometimes just seem mundane into something that truly is an art form and, and truly a beautiful expression of so many different things coming together occasionally in an almost perfect way. And there is nothing more elegant than that. <laughs> and I think that's, I think that's one of the reasons it was, it was important to me, just the, the sheer elegance of nature and what nature can do. And then what you, the gardener, along with mother nature can create that is exceptional and very personal. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you you already also gave us a, a little bit of a preview into this, that your front garden, as it unfolds from the, the enormous and generous tulip display to the, the later spring and early summer um, perennial and annual, I think, display that you have, that you often add edible elements. Um, and I think one of the great accessibilities of your style and and what you have learned and then share with others is this idea of that structure that you already suggested, but also a lot of containers so yes. that there's this flexibility and you have edibles throughout everything. You have that, you know, the lettuce, the cabbages, the the whatever it might be in containers, in your ornamental beds, in the back, in the formal potager, but throughout your your garden design. Well, I just think that that vegetables and the way they grow and the fruit they produce are really every bit as beautiful as any ornamental. Mm -hmm. You know, who's to say that a zinnia is really much more beautiful than the floret of, you know, the head of a cauliflower. I mean, it's, it's a very subjective thing. And there was another gardener 
And I would encourage you, Jennifer, to get this book. I would encourage all listeners to get this book. Um, it's an old one, but it was written by a woman, Molly Chapelet, uh, and it's called, I believe, In the Vineyard Garden. And she created a garden in Napa Valley. And she very much channeled this aesthetic of the beauty of edibles and how you could use them and how you could express yourself with them to have great, obviously functional utility and beautiful things that you could, you know, that you could use, but not just on your charcuterie board, you know, they could be beautiful in the context of a garden and the color echoes that can be created and the textural contrasts, the textural synergy that can be created when you Break out of that mindset that the vegetable garden is in one place and the ornamental garden is another, and you just break those chains, that it just allows for so much playfulness mm. and so much creativity. And and if you if you do that and you play with that, whether it's in containers or in the ground, within a very good garden bone structure then that is the best of all possible worlds to me, just the best of all possible worlds. And just a, just a fun, you know, a fun thing. And that's, and how fun is it for a child to walk down a path that's got strawberries growing in between it? (laughs) You know, it's so fanciful. It's, it just speaks to the child yeah, and all it does. of us. Yeah, it does. Because that's fun for me to walk down too and, um, you know, snack snack as I weed. <laughs> yes. um, what other takeaways would you like for listeners to hear about what you hoped for this book? I think, I, I hope that it also expresses and gives everyone permission to just fail, mm. to just, just if you're not failing enough, you're not trying hard enough. You know, it's a it's a gardening risk worth taking to buy a package of 99 cent seed. <laughs> and so what if it doesn't work out? It will give you great joy in just maybe seeing the seed germinate, even if it's plowed up by squirrels shortly thereafter. Um, <laughs> so give yourself permission to, to fail. You know, I have killed more plants probably than have survived. Um, if I want to create a topiary, I will torture something to, you know, bend it to my will to a certain extent. Uh, you know, just give yourself permission because a lot of times, and and I'm I'm trying to t- really also teach myself this lesson over and over again because sometimes it's just not your right. fault. Sometimes it's you can't navigate a winter with minus eighteen degree temperatures and a summer with 118 degree temperatures and expect your garden to look like a magazine cover all the time. And I think that's one of the great gifts of the garden, right? Is the surrender of like, I can't control it all no matter how hard I try. So yeah. No, no. But there is always something to appreciate. There, There is always something that everything else doesn't like the heat, but one thing does. Yeah. You know, it may be the basil or the sunflower. It it gives you an appreciation for things that just have the will mm-hmm. to live. Yeah. Um, and 
And so I would encourage people not to beat themselves up. And the other the other second thing I would say that I think is so important is to start small. You know, don't go out and dig up your whole front yard. Start small, get a grip on it, learn how to take care of that spot. Google what you're growing so you know best practices to grow that particular thing and and experience success. And then once you experience that, then, you know, increase the size of your garden or add more pots or whatever. But don't just you know, go out full throttle and everything kind of looks like a holy mess <laughs> versus staying small and have it be really beautiful and tended and appear as if it has been given lots of loving care. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is great advice. Now, before we end, I want to move from that that lesson of surrender and we can't control it all to one of the more controlling things, which you just intimated, and that is you are famous for topiary. Would you share with listeners maybe your three favorite plants to create a topiary out of and some tips on uh, maybe trying a topiary in a small pot for themselves? Because I think it is it's so fun. Sure. Well, it is. And I think it speaks to, you know, a topiary is nothing more than a rendition of how a child would first draw a tree with a ball with a <laughs> stick on it. And so I think, I think that speaks to, to, you know, the youthfulness in all of it. So I think there's that, again, that kind of primitive mm. appeal to it. Um, and, and so you can start out anywhere. I, I have, I know many people think boxwood is boring, but I have never met a boxwood I didn't like. I, I've, I've often said, I don't know if I can say this here, but that I'm a boxwood <laughs> slut. You can. I, it's a podcast. I love boxwood. And so boxwood was probably my my first medium for creating mm-hmm. topiary um, because there's nothing to me more beautiful than a beautifully clipped boxwood orb. And Oftentimes, you can go to a nursery and just find a one-gallon boxwood that already approximates that shape, and you put it in a beautiful terracotta pot, and you mulch it with some gravel, and you snip on it a bit, and all of a sudden, it looks so elevated and expensive, (laughs) and like something that you would get, you know, at an expensive florist. And so, it's just so simple, and it's so accessible. So, boxwood would be one of my first things, but really almost any evergreen. You know, you can get a gallon-sized evergreen for $8. It's a gardening risk worth taking to try pruning that in a shape, whether it's a single ball or a poodle shape, you know, or a lollipop with a stem on it. Um, it's, It's a gardening risk worth taking to just try it and be brave. You know, just be brave. Get out your secateurs and clip it into something. And the more you do it, the more you feel confident about it. And yes, it may only last a summer, but you only spent $8 on it. And you've amortized it over those many months where it gave you so much joy. So I think that's what I love about topiary. But there are so many different things. One of my favorite things to do is to go outside and shop my garden. 
And I will dig up, and this is also a testament to the fact that gardening need not be expensive. So you can go out and dig up little cherry laurels or little blue point junipers or little evergreens that the birds have planted and pot them up and make them look important, elevate them by potting them up, pruning them beautifully, giving them a mulch of gravel or something. And you've elevated something very simple that you didn't spend any money on. So I, I love boxwood. I, of course, love love uh, bunny melons, uh, iconic myrtle, com- myrtle compacta. Yep. Um, I absolutely love that. I love rosemary, any kind of herbs. I've written so many articles for magazines on topiary and have done so much, um, so many YouTube things on it that I just loved it. And, and it speaks to so many people. I think, I, I think I have maybe, <laughs> maybe started a little bit of a topiary revolution <laughs> in the United States, because it is just so fun and never underestimate the value of having fun. I love that. And it really brings us full circle to your your mentioning of sensual in the beginning, because I think that is one of the joys of topiary is it it does seem sometimes like maybe exerting over control, but it's also this interactive activity oh, yeah. and you can feel it and you get a sense of the texture of the plant. And then almost everyone that you just mentioned also has this fantastic fragrance that just is all around you while you're playing with it. And yeah, It just epitomizes the style and the sensuality and that Oklahoma accent fun. Linda Vodder, thank you so much for being a guest today. (laughs) It's been a real treat. Oh, thank you. It's been a great treat for me. I feel very honored to have been on this program. Linda Vodder is the proudly Oklahoma-based and accented, exuberantly spirited woman behind some well-loved garden life resources, including Potager blog on Instagram and garden-inspired living on YouTube. She is as well-known and recognized for her picturesque Oklahoma gardens and garden life advice as she is for her sense of style and unflappable fun. Join us again next week when we welcome back to the program Nancy Lawson, author of The Humane Gardener, who joins us to share more about her newest book, Wildscape. Trilling chipmunks, beckoning blooms, salty butterflies, and other sensory wonders of nature. That's next week. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communications by communications intern Sheila Stern. 
were based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.